This is Tracy. And this is Sheila. And we are Spy Five Chicks. Yeah, what she said. On this episode, we're going to break a little bit from our normal pattern, and we're actually going to do a book review. And we're going to do a book review of something called The 100 Mile Diet. It has the word diet in it. God forbid the Zvi Fat Chicks are going to talk about the great big D word. But, to be fair, the word diet is an archaic thing, which shouldn't even be considered anymore. It should be more of a lifestyle change, rather than a... Because diet seems so temporary. It's like you're going to only be on it until you get healthy. Instead of you're going to actually change the way you eat to eat better so that you stay healthy longer. So you mean as soon as you lose those 10 pounds, you shouldn't go out and eat a cheesecake? (sighs) Dang, (laughs) I've been doing it wrong all these years. (laughs) So in this case, diet is the wrong word to put in the title of this book. It's definitely a lifestyle kind of thing rather than a diet. Yeah. So this is written by Alyssa Smith and J.B. McKinnon. He goes by James in the book, James McKinnon, Alyssa and James. And just a quick brief overview. It's about them trying to eat foods only from within 100 miles of where they lived for a year. Yeah, they were pretty hardcore about it. They were kind of dirty hippie. They jumped right in. <laughs> they, um, it started out as a series of articles they wrote where they were trying to do this that were published in a Vancouver magazine, and eventually they ended up getting it published into a book. Now, this is a Canadian thing for American listeners. I don't know if you'll be able to find this in the States or not. If anybody manages to find the book, could you pop onto Podbean or Facebook and let us know? If you, you found it in the States? You could probably go to Amazon.ca and have it shipped to you. But. And it may be on Amazon.com. It may actually be in the American end of it. We may only have the Canadian edition. I just know when we flip over the back, there's only one price, which usually means it's a Canadian-only book. Yeah. And it's it's published under, um, let me see here. Random House? Randomhouse.ca. So we know it's, it's put out through the Canadian end of the publishing house, but it may be down in the States. It's a kind of a a growing movement, the whole eat local thing, so you may see it down there. But um, we're going to talk about what we liked about the book, what we thought they did that was incredibly crazy, and then a couple other things at the end. To start off with, the incredibly crazy things. (laughs) With the 100 mile diet, it comes down to, you have to prepare, and you have to plan. You can't do the modern, I'm just going to grab whatever, throw it in the microwave and heat it up. You have to actually like pre-plan to have food available for you to eat. Um, Shop in advance and decide what you're going to eat. It's a lot of work. (laughs) This is not the lazy person's diet. This is not the I'm going to live off a lean cuisine diet. This is the I'm going to learn to cook diet. Yeah, and if you can't cook, it's pretty difficult to, to stick to it. Which in the book, um, only James can cook. Alyssa apparently is, is slightly kitchen illiterate, mm-hmm. so he did the bulk of the cooking and she lived off of most of the time whatever he ate, though she did actually pick up some skills by the end of the year. That was one thing I thought was just hysterical. She couldn't cook, only one of them could cook, and they jumped into this. The second yeah. thing that just made me go, ah, what? Is they started it in March. Now, if you're only going to eat local foods, the worst time to start this is going to be pretty much November through about April. Yeah. Everything that has been grown has already been sold. Unless you thought ahead and you you put some things down canning, you're not going to have any local foods as far as vegetation goes, except for some winter vegetables. You might be able to have some carrots and some cabbages and things, but most of it is going to be imported. That's why we have so many out-of-season vegetables in the grocery stores now, and that's why they're affordable, because we get them pulled in from, you know, a thousand miles away. Mm. And that was their catalyst for this. Yeah. Food came from Chile. Yeah. The, they talk a lot in the book about redundant farming, which is even gingers grown in North America nowadays. There's very few things that you can't really get that won't grow in our climate. I mean, in bananas. An, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much it. I mean, vanilla. That's in, about in, it. In Ontario alone, 
we have access to all different kinds of Asian vegetables. We have peaches. It's not just in the south, you know. We have a great grape-growing belt in Niagara. There's all different kinds of stuff. I don't know how olive trees would do. They might be okay in the summer in the Niagara region, but yeah, I kind of don't. Know. I don't know how they would like, work. That's one example, but most yeah. things, I mean... I just thought of that because they said they knew somebody at the end of the book who was going to try to put some olive trees in around Vancouver to see how they did. And I'm kind of curious how that worked out. It's like, they say you can't do it, you can't do it, but you can actually grow citrus trees as long as they're mm -hmm. like the small varieties and you can bring them inside during the winter time. Just a little bit of citrus, it's not a whole lot. And you can find citrusy things from other sources. We should probably, again, explain the background noise. Great big shout out to Apple Annie's on Mississauga East. We're down here again podcasting with our coffee and our delicious, delicious banana chocolate cake that we split. <laughs> and delicious, delicious coffee. Oh, their coffee's so good down here. And it's just such a warm, cozy atmosphere. I love the place. So, anyway. Yeah, we'd actually recorded this before, but we decided to re-record it because we were totally disorganized. It was all over the place. We just skipped from spot to spot to spot to spot about the book and everything. Well, we had we, so many ideas and so yeah. many great inspirational things coming from the book that it really merited a little bit of homework. And we really do re-record a lot of these. I think we've had three of them so far that we that we had a first and second draft of the podcast. Because we just, we do it and we're like, yeah, we're not happy with it. Or, oh, you hear this funny buzz in the background. Yeah. Like the time we accidentally had the recorder set to high sensitivity in a crowded area. That was a bad idea. Yeah, that was here, actually. <laughs> yeah, we had to redo that one. I think it was the hot pot episode. Mm -hmm. So so podcasting, it ain't easy. We, we put a lot of love into these episodes and a lot of work for the whole ten people that listen to them. Shout out to our ten listeners. Again, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. Tell two people. That's the best thing you can do. Tell two people, stand over their shoulder, and watch them download it on iTunes to make sure they listen. No, don't do that. That's mean. <laughs> Unless you, you know, want to be that aggressive if you're that diehard of a fan. So, back to the book. So, yeah, they they started at the worst time of the year. And they even said in the book, they're like, we're, we're stupid. We're idiots. We shouldn't have done this in March. And they struggled through. They ate a lot of potatoes and cabbages. Yeah. And it was they, like root vegetable heaven. Yeah. And they called them <laughs> winter, winter vegetables, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, um... They were vegetarians. I say the were because partway through their year, they hit a point where we need meat. We're having yeah. a hard time getting what we need, what we we need variety, so they actually went back to eating meat during the 100-mile year. Right. Well, there's no locally grown like soy or anything, and that's kind of the vegetarian catch-all for their protein, and they weren't really getting enough Lots of the beans. the beans that they were eating, so they pretty much had to resort to... Because they were almost vegan, weren't they? Almost. I think they still so, eat cheese and eggs. I know they ate eggs right away in the beginning. Yeah. So, which and is... Eventually tasty. the eggs just weren't cutting it. They needed more protein than just that. You can only eat so many omelets before you cave. Cheese, though, is something that, for the 100-mile diet, you can almost in any community find an artisan cheese. Yeah. It's not going to be cheap, but you can find it, and you can usually do the local thing with that. There's always a dairy farm somewhere, unless you live in, like, New York or something, New York exactly. City. Well, even then, they have upstate New York, which is within 100, 100 miles. miles. Yeah. So, uh, other... cheese. Shout out to the Cuba cheese. <laughs> tasty, tasty. Oh, that's just good. So, what else, what other bones did we have to pick with, we looked at them and said, you're crazy? The eating, the, they finally found, like, a local wheat producer, and they had... He's like, well, I pretty much harvested everything that I had. There's some, there's one bag left in the barn, and you can have it if you want, if you haul it out of there. So they get into this barn that's been, the bag of wheat's been there, like, pretty much all winter. And it was unground. It was just sitting on the yeah. ground, and it was filled with mouse crap. So <laughs> he's like, it's okay, it's still good, it's still good. No, dude, no, stop it. Not. So he's sitting there separating out the mouse crap from the wheat with a credit card every day. It's like, like kind of crazed cocaine addict, but instead of like, you know, 
lining up your cocaine lines, you're lining up your, your wheat lines. Oh my god. Yeah, I, like, that's just not healthy. I don't care. It, if it was a survival situation, sure. But you know what? Go without the wheat, make some potato flour. There was a, yeah. at one point, Alyssa in the book says, uh, does hantavirus mean anything to you? The one disease you get from mouse feces? Yeah. Yes, yes, it does. Well, and then there's not only that, but uh, it was filled with weevils, too. Mm-hmm. And they started finding the weevils about halfway through the bag. Yeah. So eventually the bag of wheat got tossed, and they found a local wheat provider. But um, that would be step number one. See if you can secure a, a local source of wheat. If you can't, find flour alternatives. We found directions online for making potato flour. Yeah, definitely. And there's a heck of a lot you can do with potato flour. It makes really good bread for one. I imagine yeah. it probably makes fluffy tasty pancakes for two. Mm-hmm. And because it's kind of finer rather than all-purpose flour, I bet it makes really good cakes and pastries. And for our listeners in West Virginia, some of our friends down there, you guys have it. If you ever wanted to try this, you have a total in with buckwheat. Yeah. Over in Preston County. I mean, you guys just go to town with yeah, that. Yeah, because you can use buckwheat to make anything. Yeah. You can substitute it in almost any recipe that calls for flour. You might have to, if you're going to do a lot of like rising breads and rising cakes, you might have to tweak it a bit. Yeah, you're going to have to tweak it with your, your pow- baking powder and baking soda. Just to make sure there's enough lift yeah. and enough structure. Because a lot of that stuff comes in all-purpose flour or cake flour now, and the proteins are different. So don't expect, like, amazing results. Yeah, well, you can't do it one for one, usually. Yeah. Because it's a different texture. Yeah, you'll, you'll have to get crazy with it. And I, I was amazed at... I guess I take for granted that we watch the show Good Eats, so we know a lot about food science and its, its background and what you can substitute and what needs to be taken out. So when they're sitting there and they're panicking, because, oh my god, that means no sugar, I'm like, honey, you can substitute honey. There's an easy yeah. ratio. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but I remember the episode. Yeah. And, and, and you can put honey in pretty much everything you make in place of sugar. Yeah. And there's a local beekeeper everywhere you go. Pretty much. I mean... Cities have them. Yeah, exactly. So even in cities, there's rooftop apiaries. Bees will travel for miles and miles to get pollen for their honey. Was it like a 10-mile radius for bees or a 100-mile radius yeah, or something? It's something, something like that. Sick. It's it, When I heard yeah. it, it shocked the heck out of me. I remember once when we were living in Granville around Morgantown, and there was a honeybee. <laughs> and Sheila looks at it, she goes, Ooh, it's a honeybee. I'm going to follow it back to its hive. I'm like, can't that be pretty far away? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And I just, You're right. I imagine this, like, family circus little dotted line of Sheila going all over the Morgantown area following this poor little bee back to his hive to be like a poo bear and take his honey. Right. So, I think we scared the people next to us away. So, sounds like we're talking to ourselves almost. Yep. <laughs> anyway. So, but yeah, that's that's something we take for granted. And those of you who have never seen the show Good Eats, this is my favorite cooking show of all time. How about you? Yeah, I mean, hands down. Number one, I, I started watching it back before I met you, actually. Rick and I would watch it. Mm-hmm. And, uh... You're the one that introduced me to it. I'd never yeah. heard of it before. Because you, well, you heard of goodies, but you thought it was just some sort of, like, man food show. Yeah, this is how we make man, which is a hundred different ways, you Yeah. Know? <laughs> I, I had no idea. Now put mushrooms in it. Yes. Now put pepperoni in it. Now we're gonna put two kinds of cheeses in it. You know, really, I had no idea what it was. <laughs> and she was like, oh my god, this show is great! And the first time I saw it, I fell in love with it, because it is the perfect match of science and culinary adventure. Yeah, well, it adventure. to your geekiness, yes. too. Yes. Because he's all about experimenting, and you can tell that the recipe that he eventually shows you, they probably tried a thousand different ways to figure out what the best way to do it, the most fail-safe, foolproof, the most theologically sound. And he makes his own uh, kitchen gadgets a lot of the times, too. He's all about unitaskers, or um, multitaskers, and not buying something if you don't need it. If you can do it with a pie plate and a can of beans instead of some specialized tool go for it. I, I yeah. think that's just neat, because there's too many shows that are like, okay, you get out your specially designed scalloping knife or something. You yeah. don't need that. And he does our shows, the pantry raid shows. I think 
if you're only ever going to watch, if you're going to do the 100-mile diet and you want to get a good sampling of Good Eats, find the Pantry Raid episodes, because he goes into his pantry and pulls out those items that you never think to use, and a lot of those would be 100-mile foods, like yeah, beans definitely. and everything. Yeah, he does, like, a lot of stuff with the beans, he does a lot of stuff with, uh, like, dry Odd goods. vegetables, yeah. like eggplant, and sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes, oh, I love sweet potatoes. And that's another place you can get sugar from, too. It's yeah. harder to do, but... It's still possible. I think the potato flour would be the easiest one to actually get if you couldn't get your hands on wheat. Right. So, again, something that we take for granted that we didn't realize, oh, we actually know a little bit about this compared to the authors who are just journalists. They're not foodies, really. Yeah, they weren't just foodies. They were like, to them, well, okay, to be fair, we don't always eat to live. Sometimes we live to eat because we like food. They were more of a food is what, they probably have the healthy attitude than we have, but. Oh, yeah, they're healthy people. They're healthy, dirty hippies. (laughs) The food is the fuel that keeps my body going, whereas we're like, ooh, this tastes good. Oh, I haven't tried that before. Let's put it this way. If we were grandparents and they were grandparents for the same family. You'd want to come to us. The kids would be coming (laughs) to our house because we'd have the cakes and the pies and the tasty stews and things. And the kids would say, oh, we're going to see Grandma Alyssa and Grandpa James again because they've got, oh, tofu. Oh, wiggling block of tofu. Not only tofu ice cream, there's not even any milk in it. So No slam on vegetarians no, or anything I like that. I love vegetarians. And I, I, never, I never cease to be amazed at the creativity of vegetarians yeah. to find foods to live on and ways to cook them to make them palatable yeah. without it being really hideously expensive in most cases. I mean, they get really creative down there. Yeah, they do. Anybody who is a vegetarian and does it as a lifestyle, my hat's, are, my hat's off to you. Right. I don't think I can do it because I like meat. I have come to terms with the fact that my meat once walked around and made cute little noises and had cute little eyes looked up at you and said, don't kill me and eat me. But I'm heartless. Okay, here's my thing. And I knew this was eventually going to come up. I'm a proud omnivore, but I don't ever want to think that the animal that I ate was treated like a machine, was treated like it was just there for me. Mm-hmm. I want that animal to have had a good life, room to stretch, good food, and been comfortable. And you know what? This is another thing that I thought of too. Happy animals taste better. Yes. Fear does not taste good. No. Factory farm stuff tastes, tastes like crap, crap. Because that's what it's been standing in. Yes. Veal that's been free range, that's been allowed to walk around with its little other baby moose that tastes good. Kobe beef. We might as well have the, the veal discussion right now. We had this actually on the way back from Wasega Beach because we kept, it was so weird down there. Every place had like veal sandwiches. It was like, like the thing, why? I don't know. But we kept passing all these like what we thought were veal farms because there were lots of little baby moose walking around. And I came to the conclusion, which is something I'd known all along really, but I never voted. It. It's not that I have a moral objection to veal. It's that to me, it just doesn't taste good. I like my meat to taste. I like it to have flavor. And veal to me doesn't have enough flavor to it. It's yeah. too soft. You prefer the stuff that's been aged mm-hmm. because I mean, after a cow has been butchered, it hangs for a while to like. It's almost like it's like a controlled rot, which is the same thing as we do to fruit, right? Yeah. Where you let it sit around until it's almost ready to eat it, turn black and die. Exactly. <laughs> turn into a puddle. But there was actually this great article, and I can't remember where it was, but they did a test. It was like a blind taste test, and it was like the little baby cows that had been crammed into a crate and hadn't been allowed to, and the against the other ones that were allowed like to walk free around. Range veal yeah, like well, yeah. they're in a little pen, so they can't go like way, way far, like miles, but they can still walk around. They were all with their own kind. They weren't crammed into separate little crates. They were allowed to walk around with all the other little baby cows that were eventually going to become veal, and the veal actually tasted better yeah. in a blind taste test. So it's like a scientific thing. It was done by some French restaurant, proving that yeah. free range tastes better. And I'm not going to say that factory farms are good. Honestly, I think most of them are hideous. Their labor practices are terrible. How they treat their animals are terrible. But if if I can afford to buy a local meat or something that's raised more organically, I do. 
Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of the times I can't at this point in my life. That will change, hopefully. Anybody's looking to hire a fat chick now? I'm kidding. <laughs> so that's the veal tangent. So right. Well, the, the omnivore tangent. The omnivore tangent. Of, As it ties into morality and ethics. I mean, hats off to vegetarians. We salute you. Don't expect us to join you. That doesn't say I don't enjoy vegetarian dishes. Now, sometimes oh. we go for days without actually eating a meat-based meal. Yeah. I mean, the uh, that all-veggie panini up at Rasmataz is yeah. great. And I know they have an all-vegetable panini down here at Apple Annie's that I'm going to try someday soon. Yes. I've well, become I mean, a panini slut. You eat a, an omelet for breakfast, then you eat a helping of pierogies for lunch, and then you have uh, pasta for dinner. For dinner. And right and there, you've eaten a meat-free day. I used so. to eat meatless a lot in college, too, and I didn't even realize I was doing it at the time. I didn't like hamburgers, but that's another show about hamburgers. So back to the book. Right. So those are the, most of the things that we thought they did that they were just stark raving mad. Right. So well, now, we could at least admit it. <laughs> a lot of the things they did right that we said rock on were the University Farm. Yeah. Because they were in Vancouver, and they did have a slight limit on their 100 miles because they're so close to the coast. As they hit up uh, the one university there, they had a, a model farm, and they would go there to buy things, like eggs. That's yeah. a great idea. If you live close to a, a college... Like an agricultural college? Yeah, a college that has a strong agricultural school. Check out their, their school farms, because they'll sell the stuff to you. Yeah. Like, um, West Virginia has an agricultural college, and they'll sell stuff. Yeah. What's the one in Pennsylvania? Penn State has a huge agricultural program. I went to when I was a kid. They have a program in Penn State called the Governor's School, and they have, like, all these different schools that you can go to. You, you apply to, and they say, yes, you can go. And... They take, like, anywhere between 32 and 64 kids for each program each summer, and I went to the one for agricultural science. Because at the time, little 15-year-old Tracy thought she wanted to be a horticulturalist. I thought I wanted to work with plants. And I decided after that that, no, indeed, I do not enjoy dissecting things, and even if I want to work with plants, I still have to dissect things to get to work with plants. Which is weird, but No, you need, I guess... you need a strong basis in biology yeah. to get to the rest of it, and I understand why, but nonetheless, I didn't enjoy it's that It's a hoop that most people don't want to jump through. I know, I'm not squeamish. It's just one of those things that I decided I, I did not need to do that with my life. Yeah. But I learned a lot about food then. I learned a lot about where my food came from. It, it was an eye-opening experience. And anybody who's got a kid who's, you know, 14, 15 and they're in the Pennsylvania, or check another state and see if they have the same programs. If your kid's bright and they're motivated, apply. Yeah. It's better than any summer camp I ever went to. And I got to hang like out at Penn State. I got to hang out at Penn State that year. And eat all like their ice cream. Eat all their ice cream. Oh, Penn State ice cream is amazing. University Creamery. Yeah, good stuff. Cheese curds. It's first time I had cheese oh, curds yeah. was uh, at Penn State. Cheese curds is, are huge here in Ontario because of uh, because of our big dairy farms up mm -hmm. in the Greenbelt. Not as big where I grew up. Don't have many dairy farms, you know, just outside of Pittsburgh, but we, they sold it at the Creamery because they had the dairy farm on campus. I got to stick my hand up a cow's butt as part of the large veterinarian science part. I uh, got to milk a cow, make a little bit of butter. That was really cool. I uh, learned a lot about microwave technology. I learned a lot about butchering and how animals go through those last few moments. Fortunately, the, the day our class was in there for that session, they didn't have any animals fresh in. The other class, when they went in, they had just gotten, I think, some goats or something, and they actually did the deed. I got to make sausage. That was hella cool, doing making sausage and hot dogs, and they were really good, too. I got to play, not play in the nuclear reactor, but we got to have classes at the nuclear reactor reactor on campus 
because you there's a lot of controversy about radiating your food. So we got to talk a lot about that. I tell you, I have a heck of a lot less problem with radiating food than I do genetically Gen- modified yes, food. Yes, yes. Radiating the food, you know, might be okay. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with it as it stands right now in what I've read. I'm sure some people are going to think I'm crazy on that, but the genetically modified stuff, I do have a problem with that. Just like I don't like what a lot of seed companies do where they prevent the farmer from being able to use the seeds next year. Because yeah. we're, we're killing out heirloom varieties of foods by doing that. The farmers know what they're doing, and a lot of them can create their own varieties, but when we make them dependent on the seed company, we lose yep. a lot of our, our sustainability as a society. Yeah, and they've trademarked it and turned it into some sort of legal crap. Mm-hmm. That well, they, they, they check to make sure you're not keeping the seeds. It's yeah. BS. It is. So, And if you were a farmer, I'd be like, you know, I wouldn't even bother. I'd give them the big finger if they came to try and sell their stuff to me knowing that. Yeah. Not when my family's been doing it since we first took a sharp stick and turned up some yeah. earth, you know? You know, a, a lot of respect for any farmer that tries to make it on their own seed supplies and they don't buy it commercially from some of the other places. So that was the university farm. Big kudos to them for that. Great idea for anybody who's going to do this. Seafood was another thing. They used their environment. They lived by yeah. the sea and they like hardcore went with the whole let's eat seafood and try some new things. At one point, I think the, the big turning point for Alyssa when she learned to cook was making a fish stock. Yeah. And that was pretty cool. So uh, they also went directly to the farms for things. And that is going to be a vital thing if you try to do this. Go directly to the farms. Don't try to do it through a middleman if you can help it. I mean, if you have a great place like a co-op, like Morgantown's uh, co-op, the uh, Mountain People co-op, you know, you can get good local stuff from them, but if you don't have a resource like that, rather than or going a farmer's a, market or a, a good farmer's market, rather than pestering your grocery store, go straight to the farms. Most farms will be happy to sell to you directly. Yeah. And you can get quantity, too, so you can actually can. I know you had a great thing about canning. So I was reading in this medieval food blog, and I think it's called medievalcooking.org, that she was talking about even if you only have a little bit of something left over, like say you have two or three jars worth of tomato sauce, you might as well just can it. It's not costing you anything but your time. And that way that's two or three jars less that you have to buy later. You'll be saving food, you'll be being more efficient, you won't have to buy as much later, and you won't be throwing stuff out and wasting it. You did your canning thing? Because I think that is so cool. And you know, if you have like a, a bowl of blueberries, a bowl of strawberries, and a bowl of raspberries left. Mix them all together and make like a multi-berry jam. We'll get a couple jars out of it. Exactly. And when stuff is on sale, buy a bunch of it, you know, and then and then freeze it or can it. Very, very cool idea. And I, and Preston came off the medieval thing, too. Yeah. So, and that was another thing. Big kudos hey, to the book. Living medieval is the first living locally. Yeah. Big kudos to the book, though. They uh, they did learn to preserve. They did can things. They put down a lot of uh, veggies, a lot of... Um, roots and that could go you can even can meat yeah. it makes me twitch a little bit but you can do it i don't know what my problem is with can, canning meat but I, it makes me go eh. well because like like anything if you don't do it properly it can be really really bad but just like with uh, <laughs> when you can meat wrong it goes spectacularly bad though <laughs> and you're gonna know that it's bad it's gonna like reach out and try and bite you if you did it wrong yeah it's the not like you're snarling in the, the jar <laughs> exactly it's not like you're not gonna know that you didn't do it right uh, yeah. it's the same thing with brewing your own beer people are like oh Oh, you'll go blind. It's like making moonshine. No, if you didn't do it right, you'll know. Because it'll taste like crap and you're not going to want to drink it. Or it's going to be all furry and snarly. (laughs) So... And another shout-out they did right, local wineries. Yes. They, when you do 100 miles, you're limited on what alcohol you can have. For people who enjoy a glass now and then, that's important. 
And it seems like there's local wineries pretty much everywhere. Almost everywhere. Now, there's some regions that don't have local wineries, but really... Like Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know where I grew up, there were local wineries all throughout western Pennsylvania. There's yeah. um, ones all over where we are in Ontario. And to me, there's nothing cooler than going on a road trip, stopping at a local winery, sampling their wine, and bringing back a couple bottles. Yeah. One of our favorites is in uh, western Pennsylvania. It's mm, Foxburg. Ooh, Foxburg Wines. They are... If you're familiar with western Pennsylvania, you know there's an intersection where Route 80 meets 79. These are interstates. 79 goes north and south. 80 goes east and west. For Canadian listeners, if it's an odd-numbered interstate, it goes north and south. If it's an even-numbered interstate, it goes east to west. Good trivia. So it's right by Grove City. So you take the interchange to go east on Route 80, and you can get off at the Emlinton exit, and you follow the sides to Foxburg, and they have a killer winery there. What I think stands out is they do great fruit wines. Yeah. And they do huge. good regular wines, but they do great, like, raspberry and blackberry and things. Well, that's it's playing to the strengths of the area. That area may not be fantastic for growing all those different French varieties of grapes, but they can sure as heck grow the native berries, like mm-hmm. blueberries. They can grow strawberries mm-hmm. and raspberries, and then you can make that into a really delicious just one. Mm-hmm. But, and I think we talked a little bit about this in the uh, pubcast. We mentioned Foxburg. Yeah. So we won't go too far into it, but again, if you haven't ever, if you're in the, or in the area, go check it out. One of our probably top five favorite wineries mm-hmm. and wines. But up here, there's, they're, we're filthy with them. Yeah. Niagara region. And another, like, often overlooked beverage is cider. Cider, cider. cider. Yes, it's delicious. Apples pretty much grow anywhere you throw the seeds. Oh. So that makes it a truly local beverage. And it was actually the beverage of choice, pretty much, for the founding fathers. Here's where I'm going to be naughty and out myself a little bit here. When I was in college, I didn't turn 21 until my last semester in school. But before I turned 21 that summer, I had bought a mead-making kit. So I got really interested in how you make alcohol. And my parents were okay with it, because by the time the mead was going to be ready to drink, I would have been well over 21. So, you know, we moved me back to school that year with my little carboy of burbling mead in the back of the car and sitting in my room. So then I get the bright idea, well, cider's probably pretty easy to make. I looked up some recipes, because I like cider, and I found a really simple recipe. It's like a five-day brew from start to finish. So I started making cider in my dorm room <laughs> last year in college. You put it down Sunday night, it was ready to drink by Saturday night. It was great. It's my science project. It's yes. not any contraband. Oh, yes, exactly. I never actually bought alcohol, but it was it was kind of cool. I'm just amazed you can buy brewing yeast without being 21, but you can't buy anything else. But you yeah. can't buy a porno mag or anything like yeah, that. that. Or that a lottery was, ticket. Well, you can't at 18, but yeah, yeah. I was just entertained that that's how easy it is. A 20-year-old college student in her dorm room can make gallon batches of cider. I used to bottle them in those little 8-ounce uh, Coke bottles, too. Well, cider is something that will just start fermenting by itself. If you leave a cup of apple juice, it'll just start to spontaneously ferment. Mm-hmm. It's, you can go to vinegar or something tasty. Right. Well, and that's the other thing is you'll know whether or not you want to drink it. Yeah. Um, actually, one of the places that I worked before, we had pineapples to put on the uh, to put on the, the calzones <laughs> that we were making. And we had this big plastic container of pineapples that nobody had drained because the idiot that was working day shift didn't do it right. But anyway, so I looked at it, and it looked like there was little bubbles in it. I'm like, oh yeah. So we poured that off, and what it was was the pineapple juice had started fermenting from people having flour on their fingers, reaching in and grabbing pineapples to put on the in the calzones, and that had introduced a little bit of yeast probably from the dough that we were using. Because there's natural yeast sometimes in a lot of the flours you use too. Right. Or well, just from the dough. In general. That's the right. Dough. From the dough, not yeah. from the flour. Um, yeah. So we, <laughs> we drank that, and you got a little bit of a buzz. It was probably only like 2 or 3% alcohol. That is but... so hardcore, like gel booze. I can't <laughs> believe you did that. No, it tastes way better than jail booze, because jail booze is made out of ketchup. Good point. So, <laughs> back to the it's 100 miles. It like pineapple cider. So, the book, awesome, 
Uh, it's an interesting read. I'm, I'm impressed, too, that at the beginning of each chapter they put a recipe. Yes. Which may or may not work for you locally, depending on what you have available to you. But there were a couple things in there that sounded really good that I wouldn't mind giving a uh, try. Yeah. Spinning it through the kitchen. Do you want to talk about the show now? Yeah, we should hit the show up. Now, this is impressive. After they did the book, they talked a couple families, six families out in Mission, uh, Mission BC. BC. Mission yeah. BC into eating 100 miles for 100 days. And they did a mini documentary out of it. It was six episodes long. They showed it on the Food Channel up here. You can find some information about it on the Canadian Food Channel. It's foodtv.ca. 100 Mile Diet into Google. And it'll pop up with a bunch of links and you can get to it eventually. We're going to post a bunch of links up on the site. So check Podbean. Anybody who listens to iTunes, I know sometimes when you run the mouse over the episode, it'll tell you the links. But if you go straight to Podbean and look us up, you get the links all right there. So it might be a little faster. Awesome show. We watched it. We liked it. Really funny. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stumbling blocks for people are no tea, no coffee, no beer. We've already discussed the the beer thing, is that you can find some local stuff to drink or make your own. Because if you're making your own, it's local at that point. The hard point is finding the local ingredients, though, for the beer. But cider, you can always find local ingredients. There's local wineries. There you go. Um, There's also tea. Herbal teas are everywhere. You can grow things for herbal teas in your own backyard. That's not hard to do at all. In fact, you can take some trimmings from a spruce spruce tree Mm -hmm. steep it in hot water and you're good to go which is a uh, foraging which is something that they did in the book they did a little bit and they did it a lot in the, the show, show. Mm-hmm. there was like this whole episode where this one of the I don't want to call them contestants I guess one of the people that were t- participating one of the participants yeah because they're not they're not really there to win anything she went foraging with this with this guy and came back with a bunch of different stuff um, if you're into hiking you might as well take a little bag with you and mm-hmm. grab some stuff because there's food out there which just waiting to be found we're gonna sit tell you where that quote comes from later too um take a good guidebook with you though if you're like me and you're just like it's a plant or a tree or a rock you will need pictures to find this stuff it's probably like a legal thing but we're we should say we're not advising that you eat anything that you find Ooh, mushrooms no don't do that if you're smart about it when in doubt don't eat it if you're smart about it you can find lots of great things that don't look like anything that's poisonous Mm -hmm. that you can find to eat yeah so, but the show's very cool. Six families dipped to the end. Um, they had to put a couple clauses in they didn't have in the book. In the book, they had a social clause, which was they weren't going to suspend their lives for this. They were going to go out and still go out with their friends, and they could still eat out with their friends sometimes when they were on yeah. vacation. Like, if they were, like, in a business function, they weren't expected to eat locally. Yeah, because they were allowed starve. to eat whatever was put in front of them. They had to take that out for the, the 100 days one for the mission people, because it was only for 100 days. Yeah. But it was really neat. The families bartered a little bit between each other when one family had something the other one didn't they were able to find some local weeds the sea the salt sea salt yeah that was, that was really great. cool they now that was another thing in the book where they said whatever's in your house is 100 miles at the start of it but for the show because it's only 100 days that didn't count so but they I put think, it all in storage mm-hmm. so the one family went out and got sea salt they boiled yeah. salt water down and got a pile of salt yeah they used like a gallon they got like probably half a cup or a cup. yeah they, it was a lot they got a lot more salt than we thought they would have out of what they had and then they had brought jugs with them so they filled them up and took them home with them but they made like a little day of it and like had their little Coleman stove bubbling away mm-hmm. while the kids played in, in the ocean. And this is where Tracy's sticking point comes for the whole concept is Sheila looked at me at one point she said you know we could do this and my foot came down and I said oh heck no because salt is important and there's no salt here. Ontario has everything but pretty much salt and like bananas and vanilla. Yeah. <laughs> 
And now, when you start to go eat locally and you're not eating all these processed foods, your salt intake plummets like a rock, which is good for most people. We all eat too much salt. Right. I've gotten so much better about it since we've gotten together. Still, there's a lot of salts in our, our canned food, our frozen foods, what have you. When you're not doing that, you're not getting that salt intake. In the middle of the summer, you know, you're out running around like an idiot and kayaking and sweating a lot, and you're not using salt, period, because you don't have any 100 miles salt, you could have problems. I went off on this huge tangent screaming and yelling about the Romans and where the word salary comes from. And it was bad. And Sheila's like, okay, fine, we'll just have salt. I'm like, good. And that's where we came up with the idea of the, hundred, the medieval 100 miles, where yeah. you go once or twice, if you were going to try to do this, you go once or twice a year and you shop and buy all of the, the spice things that you can't get 100 miles. Like, almost like a medieval person would do, where you would wait till somebody came into town with it who was selling it, right. or you went or to like a, to the, a city once or a twice market. a year to sell your wool, yeah. or you know, you got money from selling something off of your farm and then you went and spent the money on the things you couldn't grow yourself. Yeah. So that's, we're not going to do the 100 miles right now. We've hit a point in our life where we need, we have a couple other priorities we need to do, and it can get expensive, especially when you first start doing it. But in the future, I think we're going to at least try to give it a shot in the summers because it's a cool concept. Yeah, but I mean, medieval people ate very well, and it, it always bothers me that there's this misconception that the meat's rotten and they put spices on it to cover it up. I hate that. That's like the biggest lie perpetuated. The reason why they put spices on the meat was to like bling it out. It was like the equivalent of saying having a, a blinged grill. Your teeth, you guys, you get the, the gems set in their teeth. Spiced meat in medieval ages was the equivalent of getting gems set in your teeth. Yeah, it was like if you made uh, mushroom soup and used crystal for it, you know? It's yeah. just showing how ostentatiously wealthy you are. My ingredients came from further away than yours and was more expensive. Exactly. But they ate fairly well. I mean, the meat was really fresh. If it there was meat left over, they smoked it or salted, salted it and preserved it. And they ate a lot more root vegetables than we eat now. I, I would say that's the one thing. If we're going to do 100 miles, we have to get a food dehydrator. Yeah. Because I want to just dry the heck out of everything. And there's an awesome Good Eats episode about that. You don't even need a food dehydrator, but I'm lazy, so I'm going to do it anyway. Right. But there's that one preservation episode was just fantastic. He takes like a box fan, a bunch of bungee cords, and a bunch of non-fiberglass furnace filters. Mm -hmm. It's like the cotton kind. And you stack four of them and you sandwich the meat or veggies or veggies whatever, or whatever it is you want in fruit. between to, to dry out. You attach it to the box fan. You turn it on. You let it go for, I think it was a day or two. And the wind will blow and dehydrate and desiccate mm -hmm. the, the food. Then you just open up the filters and pick out your dried stuff and put mm -hmm. it into a jar. So he did an episode, I think, about jerky, too. Yeah. And then he did another episode that included fruits and veggies and all that good stuff. Yeah, so he calls it the blowhard 4000 or something. Something like that. He's like, why spend money on a food dehydrator? I have a fan! Because he's Alton Brown, and that's what he does best. Very, very cool show. I can't well, stop talking were, about it. Well, they were talking, too, about making yogurt. And, I mean, you can make yogurt. All you need is, was it milk? A little cup of yogurt. Yeah, milk and starter, and that's... Unless you want any flavorants, then you throw in your flavorants, yeah. too. But I think it's easier to make a bunch of plain stuff and then and flavor it for what you want. Mm -hmm. But it's going to the local thing. Once you've made it and you've started using it as a starter... It's local. It's local. So, I mean, you well, can... that was all in one part of the show. That was so cool. Where the one couple was celebrating their 10th anniversary, and they had had a rough 10 years. And they had saved a bottle of wine they had gotten when they got married to open on their 10th anniversary, which fell during the 100 miles. And they asked, like, Alyssa and James for, like, uh, an oh. indulgence, almost. Yeah. Like a, you know, 
old school Catholic indulgence. Like, can we please have the wine? And Alyssa and James' attitude was, you've had it for 10 years. It's pretty much local now. Of course you can drink it for your anniversary. Yeah. That was cool. that was the same lady that, wasn't that someone that made like the 100 mile cake? Or was that a different lady? No, that lady? was a different lady. No, that, that was the couple that owned the local uh, produce store. Oh, right. Yeah. And the one woman, she was a good cook. Yeah. And they ended up getting her a cooking lesson with a chef in Vancouver that specializes in local foods. But she made some things that I, I'd love to see her put out like a, a cookbook. Yeah. Because she real. got really creative. Yeah, so. she made like this crazy like multiple layer cake. Mm. And so the... It was like a strawberry shortcake made all 100 miles. Yeah. Because you're not going to be using, was it, no baking soda or anything mm-hmm. like that. So you can't really let it rise. So it was like a bunch of flat cakes. So it came out more like a, almost like shortbread, I guess, or like a biscuit. But, yeah. I mean, her kids loved it. It was for her daughter's birthday. And she, they had two little girls and the little girls ate very well during the 100 miles. I think that family actually, they Flourished. ate, they ate probably the best. And the family that it was already had their own little local farm and they had like sheep and everything. I think they yeah. also ate very well. That was the, uh, the lesbian couple. Yeah. And they had an adopted daughter who was Native American. Was she one... adopted? I thought she was actually one woman's daughter. She might have been. Yeah. I had assumed that she was adopted. That might be totally wrong. Yeah. But anyways, they had a daughter that was Native American. And one of the things that they did on one of the shows, which was really cool, was they got her to attend like this little seminar with some of the local elders, showing her traditional ways of preserving food. Mm-hmm. Like drying out the salmon. That was really cool, doing too. Stuff and making uh, stuff, pemmican. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, those two families, I think, fared the best out of all but all of them did really well. But it was it's a cool show. You can not that we advocate downloading things, but if you can't get it in the States and you know someplace where you could not only get it, it's worth checking out. If you ever see a DVD of it out, pick it up. It's only six episodes. Yeah. Uh, if for some reason it shows up on Lulu, you know, watch it there, especially if you're into kind of food stuff. It's really cool to check out. Yeah. So the last part we want to talk about, and this is kind of in the same vein of the hundred miles. Yeah. Is a show that Sheila's found on Food TV up here. And it's a British show and it's it's on channel four in Britain. I think. It's and the tagline is, we're going to find it, we're going to kill it, we're going to cook it, we're going to eat, eat it. it. Or there's this food out there waiting, waiting to be found. found. It's called the Wild Gourmets. And she is in love with this show. It's awesome. I can't remember the names. I know the, the lady um, goes by Tommy. Tommy and, oh, his name escapes me right now. Day? No. It's like a really masculine sounding name too. Yeah. Well, they go ahead. They're like <laughs> rugged hippies. Oh. Like seriously, they they travel around England with this truck and a dog, and she has like this small pantry that she was taking for the for the trip. Spices and root veggies. <laughs> yeah, spices, and root veggies, and garlic, um, and oils. And oil. And they basically travel around England, and they live off of what they can forage and find. There was this one episode where they were by Cornwall, which is incidentally where my ancestors on my dad's side comes from, and he was out there in the surf picking mussels off the rocks, and he got all these great big mussels and then brought them back to shore, and there's this traditional way of cooking them where you heap all this, like, straw grass on top of it, light it on fire, and when it's finished burning, the mussels are done. And it was so ironic, because that was one of the same areas the two fat ladies went to, and they were just getting the mussels off the shore. And they were picking them off the rocks on shore, yeah. and he was out there diving with the dog to get them. He's and like, no, like, oh, you want the good ones, you have to go out in the water for them. I just yeah, we thought that like was hysterical. as big as our fist, whereas the ones they were getting were really tiny. Yeah, and the, another episode, that this goes back to the whole um, vegetarian thing, and it doesn't bother me because I know where my food comes from, is um, they wanted to go pheasant hunting, but they had to work to do it. A lot of these places, they would trade labor to be able to do what they wanted to do there. Yeah, like the guy and, would chop wood for them or whatever. And they worked with the hare catcher, the rabbit catcher, to help clear out one of the fields. And the traditional way to catch rabbits is you put these little snares, these little net snares, over the holes in 
and the Warrens, and then you send a ferret down the hole to chase out the rabbits. As the rabbits come out, you grab them from the net, and you, you break their necks so you don't sully the, the fur, and you sell them to the local butchers, because rabbit is a very viable meat source. Yeah. It's tasty. The pelts can be worth a nice penny. I mean, it's worth, you know, doing it right to get the money from it. Exactly. And the girl, Tommy, she's just not, like, despairing because she has to kill these bunnies, but she's a little nervous about it because she's never yeah. really killed anything before up close. She's shot things, and she's like, I'm going to have my hands on this, and I'm going to feel its life this is, go. This is real. This is real. And this and is she, really knowing where your food comes from. She manned up and did it, and yeah. did it well. And I it was respect just, her a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, I again, I pick on dirty hippies because I've met a lot of them that don't live up to the principles they, they spout off about, but I've met a lot who do, and I would love to meet these two. I'd love to get, if they ever do a cookbook and get them to sign it or something, because I, I really admire their cooking. Yeah. Their recipes they have up on the, the food site from Britain. I want to try some of those recipes. They look so good. Yeah. They were able to find a lot of cool mm-hmm. stuff. And uh-huh. it's like living the way our ancestors did, you know, that, making it more simple. She foraged a salad and everything yeah. was foraged except like the nuts that she toasted to put in it. And it was really cool too. She had like a vinaigrette dressing and nuts and then everything else came from like their walk in the woods with the dog. Right. So and again, another cool show if you can find it somewhere place. I mean, that's the down and dirty hundred miles right there. Yeah, a lot of fishing, a lot of foraging. They found, like, all kinds of mushrooms, and they found these really rare ones that they were able to trade at a farmer's market for some root vegetables that they needed because their supplies were running low. I mean, they're like James and Alyssa's, like, dirty, evil, hardcore twins or something, you yeah, know? That's they so were, cool. like, totally hardcore Yeah. About it. So, uh, we're actually running out of time. We have to get to work soon, so I think we better sign off now. We've run on for a while on this episode. Yeah. Was there anything else that we wanted to add? Uh, no. We'll put the links up you know eat locally be a local boar you don't have to do it all the time maybe do it one day a week check out some local places hit yeah. your farmers markets they're fantastic Even places if you eat locally one day a week it's going to make a difference and if you go to a farmer's market and the fruit or the vegetables look ugly that's good that means it's probably an heirloom variety yeah and those are like almost like, like past tomatoes those are like passed down through generations these like particular strains of the seeds and they've been developed for like usually taste if they look like that they're not well, developed to be pretty or to be brute here's a perfect example what people ate even 50 years ago isn't what's on the grocery shelf now Mm-mm. because carrots used to be black. Medieval carrots, if you look at pictures like paintings of them, they're like a dark, dark blue or black. And it was only in the last probably 100 years that they were developed to become this bright, bright orange. Food's made to look appealing, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean it's any more nutritious or better for you. Exactly. So, you know, check out some of the ugly foods. I think you won't be disappointed in them. Ugly! So, so unbearably ugly. ugly. All right, so this is Tracy. And this is Sheila. We are Zvi Fat Chicks. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the Zvi Fat Chicks podcast. Please add us as a friend on MySpace and or Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter. You can email us at zvifatchicks at gmail.com. That's Z-W-E-I-F-A-T-C-H-I-C-K-S at gmail.com. Our theme music is Hot Swing by Kevin McLeod. And we hope that you have a great day.